1: Welcome to Book Off, a literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddow, and in this episode, I'm joined by two giants... Not physical giants, but giants of historical fiction and their craft. Journalist and author S.J. Paris and co-founder of the Women's Prize for Fiction, and bestselling author Kate Moss. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. How lovely to have you both here. We've we've been trying to set this up for a few weeks, and it's finally happened. <laughs> finally happened. We're well,
2: already all our words are prepared.
1: And all it took <laughs> yeah. was for you to fly back from New York, Kate. Ah, oh, yes, yes.
2: <laughs> Straight, you know, if I say anything rubbish, that's why I'm just jet lagged.
1: So you've you're jet lagged like you were in a diner at 5am this morning 3am
2: 3 3am 3 yeah. this
1: morning goodness yeah. I was. Uh, that was on New York time I was up at 3am for goodness knows what reason and you are as fresh as a daisy Stephanie
3: well I'd like to think that I am but I've, I'm trying a new routine because I've got to get a book finished by the summer um, and somebody recommended to me that getting up before the crack of dawn is the best way to I think that was me that to me. work no, no, that I too. know you do it I know that you do it but somebody recommended it to me very recently and I thought right I'm going to try this so I have been setting my alarm for quarter past five and getting up and making a huge pot of coffee and trying to write and it, you, you were right Kate it is actually brilliant I, I write almost a day's worth of words in about yeah. two hours really uh, so it's, you don't yeah. get drawn into the day it's like it. you sort of go to sleep and you're cooking
2: it while you're asleep and then you get up and you're still in that kind of twilight liminal ah.
3: space in, with your imaginary expl- friends. Because you haven't checked your emails at that That's point. Right. You know, there, nobody's ringing up. Or, you know, there's nothing else to be done except... Just get on with it, and mm. uh, no, so I found this. But I don't know how long I'll be able to sustain it <laughs> before I just collapse. The yeah. last, but you'll ever write. Yeah, you'll be exhausted. <laughs> yeah.
1: But is it important to 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 stay away from your phone in that early moment? Then you sort of don't want to connect with what's happening in the world. Just get up, g- get the coffee on, and then. Well, and then I think start. it's important
2: to stay away from your phone in that way. Anyway, anyway, yeah. I mean, actually, I think that we've all allowed this level of intrusion into our our lives. You know. And I, I'm terrible terribly guilty of that, mm. but certainly when I'm writing, I don't you know I use a little old, really quite old, rackety laptop. It's not email, no emails on it, no Internet on it. It is absolutely like having a pad and a, a paper and a, a pen to work with. Mm. And that I find absolutely essential, the idea that the creative thing is utterly separate from business and you know day-to-day stuff and prescriptions and shopping mm. and yeah. you know
1: all of that. Uh, are you the same, Stephanie?
3: Well, I, I'd like to be that disciplined. And I have looked into, um, you know, even going back and using a typewriter or getting. <laughs> you get, there, was, there was some gadget recently I was reading about that, that they were trying to get crowdfunding for, which was basically a typewriter, but you could sort of put a USB <laughs> stick in it so that you didn't have to retype, uh, like the old electric oh, typewriters. The but then you machines. didn't need to, yeah, yeah. to retype it all afterwards. What I try to do is just switch the Wi Fi off on mm. my computer. But it, it's really hard because the temptation it, there is always, you know, if you reach a sticky point, just to think, oh, just look at my email. But yeah. it, that immediately because their the train inspiration of thoughts, will be, it's got an email <laughs> and it's just gone, you know, And then you've got to, you know, and then you just get sort of you fall down the rabbit hole of Twitter, which I, I find fatal when I'm trying to write. But it's quite hard mm,
1: to stay yeah. away from. I think a lot of authors have fallen into the the Twitter trap.
3: Authors like Twitter.
2: I mean, mm. I, I resisted for a very long time, and because I knew that I would find it really hard to not get addicted to it, actually. And it's just one area where authors are really quite active and we engage with each other quite a lot on it, in fact. And that's why we all know where we are. You know, where in the world, you <laughs> <Yes>. know, <laughs> you know travelling around. You know, because, oh, I saw that picture.
1: <laughs> Keeping tabs on everyone. Keeping tabs
2: you know. on everyone. But, um, yes, I think you're absolutely right. That's That way madness really does lie, the, the, the Twitter addiction.
3: Yeah, I have great admiration. There's one or two writers who I noticed do just deactivate their accounts when they have to finish a book, and I think that discipline is very admirable. I'm going mm-hmm. to have to give that a try, I think.
1: But you, let's start try with the 5am starts first before we get yeah. to deactivating <laughs> <my> Twitter anyway.
3: <laughs> yes, yes to make one radical
2: change
1: at a time. Exactly. <laughs> <That's the one. laughs> and uh, you two are mates, aren't you? You've, you've yeah. known each other for a while.
2: Yeah, a long time. I know, but, you know, I was trying to um, work out when and how we did meet, because it's, you know, from the outside, people do have this image, and I think it's partly literary festivals and obviously doing things like this wonderful book-off joke, you know. <laughs> the idea that, you know, we're all hanging out together all the time. The truth is we're not. I you wish know, we were. I wish we were. <laughs> wish no, we were. That, To add that yeah. to the list, no books from anybody. The, the publishing industry collapses because we're all at parties. You know, I'm far too tired for a party. But I think it's the... You know, a lot of the time we're on our own. Authors are not mostly based in London. They're based wherever they live. So there isn't that sort of communal thing except round literary festivals and publications. And we all meet each other, truthfully, um, you know, in those green rooms going, Mm -hmm. you know, up and down the corridors and stuff. And after a while, I think, when we met Steph, it was that sense of, ah, well, you'd like to go out for a cup of coffee with her or you'd like to go out for a glass of wine with him or whatever and you discover round festivals you go, well if you're finishing at 5.30 shall we? And and actually a lot of I think writing friendships come out of that. The work comes first and out of that comes the friendship
3: Well I knew about Kate's work of course because of the Women's Prize and I was very privileged to be a judge for the new writing award Quite a long time ago. Yeah, now. yeah. It only um, we went but for think, three years. I think that might have been when we first sort of met in person. But I do. Then I I remember interviewing you for the Observer, and so we did. <laughs> we sort of stayed in touch, um, all these many years yeah, later. Yeah.
2: yeah, and I think I think the other thing that is, um, you know, I'm always well. I won't say accused, but because I think it's a good thing. But I'm always a- accused of being Pollyanna. You know, I'm always really super chirpy and like everything's fine. Um, But actually, I think, by and large, my experience has been that writers are supportive of other writers, that we all feel that if somebody reads your book, then they're going to read another book. You know, that it's all part of a a sum total of we're all in it together, rather than seeing... Each other as competitors, yes. which in some areas, you know, of the arts, that you know, people, mm. it, it is a competition. Mm. It, if it's if it's them, it's not you. Whereas with publishing, um, I think you know, the more historical fiction does well, we all benefit from that yeah. as writers because there's more readers. You know?
1: Absolutely, yeah. and prizes. You're right. Bring authors together. In fact, uh, a few episodes ago on this on this very podcast, we had Lionel Shriver and Tracy Chevalier with us. Great mates who met at the Women's Prize. They
2: did indeed, and Tracy has been a judge and a very good judge she was too. And of course, Lionel uh, Shriver is one of the biggest winners, and I think actually it's probably the biggest selling Women's Prize winning book um, of all. I mm. mean, I, I, I didn't <laughs> didn't rehearse the numbers, but it's, it's certainly one mm. of them. So um, we
1: need to talk about Kevin. For we
2: we need to talk about Kevin, and um, I think it's also that generosity. What I found with the Women's Prize, that people like Steph or indeed Tracy or, or, you know, this year's panel, when women agree to judge the prize, they are making a really big commitment of time. Um, But they do it in a spirit of celebrating other women's words, of uh, promoting other women and being part of a shared project. It's not... Um, it, it never feels like a job to people, and I'm really grateful that incredibly high quality writers and professionals and, do, you know, all sorts of women. It's not only writers judge the prize, but that they they have they they still are prepared to give up their time. And it is time consuming. It's very you know you can't write and judge at the same time, can
3: you, Steph? Because you've got to read. Too no, much. it's that there's so much comes in. Yeah, but it is exciting because mm. you get you know things coming through the post every day that you might not otherwise have picked up and I did um, I certainly found that with the, the new writing award that you know often I think first novels it's so difficult to get a handle on what you know um, what to look out for and that's why judging the prize was such a treat because you just you know surrounded by these fantastic books day after day.
1: I imagine you are pretty read up on on most of those. I,
3: I am very
2: um, careful to stay at least two steps behind in all of this, because I'm not a judge. Mm. Um, I'm there in the room with the Society of Authors and the Managing Director of the Prize, Harriet Hastings, to sort of oversee process and fair play and to make sure, you know, if someone is a friend of somebody, they declare it before the book's discussed. And, you know, if somebody says... Is this book eligible? It's all been checked and you know, all of that sort of stuff. Um, but for, and for me, it's the most painful thing I do because the minute I hand over to the chair, I'm not allowed to speak <laughs> at all. I sit there like, ah, and listening to them talk. Um, so it's so I'm very careful. I I read. Of course, I will have read quite a few of the books anyway. But because I'm in the middle of a, a, a huge writing project, um, I you can't. You can't do everything. So I always read from uh, the long list onwards. And it's it's so funny. Every year I sit there and I listen to the discussions and I think, oh, I think they, they, they all quite like this one, they all quite like that one. Mm. And nine times out of ten, I'm wrong about what they choose because it's something about the group dynamic. It's something about the really going back and judging with great integrity the purpose of the author, uh, the the aims of the prize, which are to celebrate the very best writing in English by women from all over the world, and also to provide a snapshot into any given year of women's voices. And now more than ever, we need to be celebrating women's voices and Mm. women's stories. Um, You know, I didn't think I'd be sitting here in 2018 saying that, but I think actually it's become even more important than it was. But it's a joy, as Steph says, it's a real joy because you can't pick up every book. And sometimes you listen, and when I'm sitting in the room listening to the judges and they're talking, and I go, oh and I, I tiptoe to the back of the room and the boxes and say can I, can I have this one can I just take mm-hmm. this one home you know so I feel the same as any other reader and, and you know that I, I feel my reading gets broader because of the prize and I try things that maybe I wouldn't pick up on my own um, because it's like you know you go to the same sandwich shop every day and you always go in and you're going to have something different and for me Somehow I'm always ordering a cheese sandwich. (laughs) Nothing ever changes over the millions of years of ordering. And I think books are the same. You tend to go down the route that you know gives you pleasure. But, of course, you sometimes get even more pleasure when you are reading totally outside of your Mm. taste.
1: You mentioned that women's voices need to be heard now more than ever, and you're absolutely right with that. But this is a prize that started back in 1996.
2: Yes, yes. And it was inspired, I suppose, by a Booker Prize shortlist in 1991 when there were no women on it at all. And that, you know, that that's fine in that the judges have the right to choose what they want to choose. However, the thing that was peculiar was that nobody noticed and so a group of men and women got together to say, this is, this is really strange. <laughs> um, and out of that came the idea, you know, we did some research and discovered that all those at that stage, some 60% of novels published were written by women. So there was no problem with access mm-hmm. to the market. Um, fewer than 9% of novels shortlisted mm-hmm. for major literary prizes were by women. So there was a problem with honouring. There was a problem with valuing. There was an idea of literature with a capital L yeah. um, is a, a gender neutral thing, except when you strip that back, it actually became a certain sort of rather traditional muscular white male voice. And the point is not to not have those wonderful male voices at all, but it's to grow the table, to have more people at the table. Because if you have a plurality of voices, lots of different stories, and they are all seen as magnificent if they are beautifully written and beautifully imaginative and expressive, then the readers benefit. It's better to hear more rather than just
3: a tiny definition of what it means to write and to be a writer. When I was younger, I used to have this idea that um, that the ideal would be that there would come a day when the Women's Prize wasn't needed because there mm-hmm. was absolute parity in the way that um, writing by women and men was was regarded and, and venerated um, and that all the, the the big prize shortlists would reflect that equality. Um But just when Kate was saying about, you know, the need to celebrate women's voices, I think I've I've sort of come around to the idea in the last few years that actually maybe that isn't necessarily the goal. Maybe even if that were the case and we were to reach that kind of giddy day when that happened, um, it would still be really valuable to have a prize which showcases the wide variety of writing by women and, and the way that women choose to write and tell our own stories, because I think that's just it's just interesting and valuable in itself.
2: Yes, and I think also that you you know th- there is a much more robust discussion of um parity gender parity in all areas of the arts now than mm. certainly there was when we were setting the prize up. But it is also very interesting and it's incredibly important not to claim the prize is responsible because we don't know. But what we can say is that because the prize is there it is always a touch paper for discussions about gender and parity and do women write differently from men and are there men's stories and women's stories? And actually it helps coalesce those discussions in theatre and in film and in art galleries and in choreography. And so what's very interesting is that we found ourselves in a way being a cultural voice about why it matters that women and indeed many other groups of people left out, sort of LGBTQ voices left out, absolutely many, many different issues of ethnicity and religions and disability and age and certainly class. So it's all of those things. It's just that what, what we're celebrating is women's voices, you know, whoever they are, whatever they look like, wherever they come from, all of that sort of stuff. And I think also it's... Um, this is a positive prize, it's about celebrating the best, mm. and why would you ever stop celebrating the best? Why would you mm. not do that? Yeah. It's great,
1: <laughs> exactly, and it's exactly, great, and it's a great party. <laughs> Thanks,
2: Joe. <joking. laughs> now we come
3: to it, Joe. Now we come. It's the to most it. glamorous literary fixture <laughs> in the whole calendar. <laughs> That's for sure.
1: It goes in the diary, doesn't it? Early on, as soon as you see yeah. that date, oh yes, gonna get me, gonna get me tucks <laughs> out. Was it good for you when you were judging to sort of? Push yourself out of your reading comfort zone, as it were, to be to be picking up those books that perhaps you wouldn't have done.
3: Oh yeah, absolutely. And I was um I was sad that the new writing award came to an end because it was a I I thought that was um a really exciting opportunity. In fact, the the year that I judged it, and now I'm just trying to remember, um, I think the winner, it was certainly my favorite, and I think it actually won was um Naomi Alderman's first novel disobedience Disobedience. yes it was and, it um, was the winner it, it was the winner yeah because I, I know the first I, there was year a very of the award. there was a very tense discussion about it <laughs> um, but I, I so that was you know and she's gone on to to become a phenomenal success and a yeah. real kind of and is the current holder of, of, of yes, the women's exactly. prize itself yes of course yeah so um so that was you know my first encounter with her and again uh what i was saying about about first novels i think i think first novels um have a really tough time in the market now. Um, there's always one or two every year that get a huge fanfare and a huge amount of money behind them. But it's hard to persuade people to pick up new writing um, unless it's got, you know, some kind of um, push behind it. And, uh, and so for me, to be sent boxes and boxes of, of first novels and just to see the extraordinary kind of breadth and variety and imagination... Of stories that people wanted to tell, mm. I, it was a really valuable experience, um, and I loved doing it. And I, d- I do think, you know, for first novels, it's it's incredibly helpful to have, you know, something that that gives people a focus to to know which ones to pick up because it takes a it takes a lot to get your book noticed now. I think, <laughs>
1: um, and of course, you you've been talking, Stephanie, about you've got a deadline your your next book um, yes <laughs> <laughs> that, that, the 5 a.m starts um, but your your latest one um, is is out and you've written instead of under SJ Paris this is this is under your name
3: it's under my own name and it's the first novel under my own name since 2005 and actually that's why I'm so late with the book I'm currently trying to finish because this was um, this was quite naughty uh, I wasn't really, this was not the book I was supposed to be writing, it was not the book I was <laughs> under contract to write um, and it was a, an idea that I'd had growing in the back of my head for about well the seeds of it were planted probably about nine, ten years ago and, and then the story began to take shape about three years ago and I kept thinking when I get to the end of the next S.J. Paris book I'm just going to Write that story, and I thought it would be a little novella. I thought I'd probably knock it out in about three months, and and it would just sort of go between the two, you know, between novels. Um, and then I started writing it, and it developed into a, a full scale novel. And my publisher and my agent were incredibly generous, and um, <laughs> and and liked it, and said, uh, "No, we'll we'll let you off that. We will publish this." So, um, so I was very pleased about that. So, uh, yeah. So this was a, a sort of pa- a passion. I was going to say a passion project, which suggests that the other books aren't, because they are. I, I love the Bruno series that I write as SJ Paris. But this was something that, you know, had sort of been nagging away at me for a while. And I yeah, yeah. I just really wanted to tell this
1: story. Just something a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's called While You Sleep. And it's, as I said, a little bit different. Sort of gothic thriller,
3: It is you say? It is. That, that's, um, yeah, we're calling it a gothic thriller. Um <laughs> It came out of, I mean, I've always had uh, a real passion for um, scary stories, ghost stories, but the kind of ghost stories that are quite ambivalent, you know, where you reach the end and you think, was there really something in the house or Mm. was it all in their head? Mm. Um, Turn of the screw. Exactly, turn of the screw. Um, I mean, the absolute gold standard for me is Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, which I, I think is... Glorious and I don't think any film adaptation has done it justice. But um, so that was, you know, I had the challenge that I, I wanted to challenge myself to see if I could do that, not least because um, I'd been watching a lot of sort of gothic ghost stories and, and scary films. And and it struck me that it's it's actually really easy to frighten people. Visually, because all you have to do is make them jump and then immediately their heart rates up, you know, they're they're sitting on the edge of their seat. And you can do that with music and just with, you know, shot of a corridor with a closed door at the end and what's behind the door. Mm. It's much, much harder to do that in prose. It's a real tip to see if you and, and the Shirley Jackson book. I think she does that brilliantly. There there are scenes in there that I if I think about them in the dark, I find all the hairs <laughs> on my arms standing on end. Yeah. And I think it's it's really hard to do that, to create something really frightening in prose without becoming graphic or horror or you know, I'm not really interested in horror or gore or, or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, so this was my challenge and I had this this story in the back of my head. And also I think to write a story like that set in the present day, because so many of the classic Stories in that genre um, require the person who is being haunted to be completely cut off. Yeah. And it's quite hard in our modern world to be cut off completely. Yeah. So I had to take my character to a, a remote island where she couldn't get Wi Fi and she couldn't you know, get a phone signal. And so, you know, she was genuinely, you know, at the mercy of whatever was in the old house with her, whether that's a, a real threat or a. Threat that you know may or may not be in her mind.
1: Yeah, tell us about the McBride House then.
3: Well, the McBride House is a it's um, I was very interested in the the history of the the Scottish islands as well. And um, you know, I read uh, Madeleine Bunting's book last year, she wrote this beautiful sort of non fiction travel book about the Western Isles in Scotland. And she wrote a lot about the the clearances in the um, 19th century where these sort of wealthy Mm. landowners would buy up an island and then have half the population or sometimes the whole population sort of shipped off to Canada or forcibly emigrated. Um, So I had this idea of this this kind of old house that had been built by one of these wealthy 19th century industrialists and his wife had lived there uh, after his death. His wife had lived there on her own and a wealthy widow by herself in a house with a child that no one ever saw um, and then they both die in mysterious circumstances so there's always there there had always been rumours about the house and and rumours about this woman while she was alive um, as there always would have been about an independent woman who lives on her own And so that was the beginning of the story and then my main character Zoe comes from America to escape her failing marriage, and seek out a bit of peace and quiet and a bit of space to, to paint, and she ends up in this house where there are echoes of things that happened in the past mm. seem to start coming back, so that's, that's the premise for it.
2: And
1: it's chilling, isn't it? It's, it's fabulous. Chilling.
2: It's
3: absolutely fabulous. And it's, um, you know, I write
2: gothic fiction as well, exactly as you say, in between the, the big historicals. Mm. And what Steph said is absolutely right, that gothic fiction thrives in the dark. Um, it, it's always about isolation. It's always about is this happening or not? You know, it's the shadow on the corner of the stair. And I think in While You Sleep, it's, you know, I read a lot of that and there were certain things I really didn't see coming. So because. I loved that because, you know, I, I feel, I, you know, all the books that you quote as influences or you enjoy are yeah. the same ones that I, no, uh, I enjoy. A, a of- um, so I, it, it was lovely for me to read um a successful, exactly as you say, contemporary Gothic because electricity spoiled everything. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, uh, you know that. If, if there's something lurking in the corner, you can flick a switch and what, what, there's nothing there or it's the rabbit's got out or something. Yeah. So, so I think it's very... But it, what I think you've done so well is there's a really strong sense of place but it doesn't feel like a set-up so because it's absolutely straightforward you know they, they the signal comes and goes and it doesn't feel like aha you know <laughs> ah now the signal's come and so i oh. i loved it i sort of gobbled through it really and um and was left thinking at the end hmm, i w- oh what do i think what do i think and that is a successful ghost story that is you know Henry James it's Edith Wharton it's all of that generations the Algernon Blackwoods all mm. of it and i think you've absolutely achieved that oh, and and it's you. not horror that that's the point it you know gothic is completely different and i think it it's fabulous read fabulous
3: read well, you're very kind thank you
1: your new novel, Kate, as well, because it's you know, it's <laughs> yes. a long time coming, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: thanks Joe. That, yes. <laughs> that, that's, that's
1: <laughs> and we were talking about it a bit earlier. Um The Burning Chamber. So this is the first of a sequence of yes, novels. Yes, yes.
2: It's it, this is an, uh, it feels a very exciting moment for me because I was a full-time writer and then for various reasons I've not been able to be a full-time writer for a few years um, and I certainly haven't been able to be travelling and researching and all the rest of it. So with this series, The Burning Chambers, which is it's a, a, a big diaspora novel really, it's Romeo and Juliet, it's yeah. a Catholic family and a Huguenot family, French wars of religion... 1562 to 1862, and the series will go from Carcassonne, of course, uh, to lose Paris, La Rochelle, London, Amsterdam, Cape Town. And it's. I've never before uh, been in a position to commit to a series of books and have a publishing programme, know when I can do it and, and then do it. So that feels very... I feel as excited... As I did when I was writing and publishing Labyrinth. Mm. Um, and it's exactly what Steph was saying about her wonderful Bruno books. It's not that um, you don't love those because they're terrific, but there was this idea with While You Sleep and it just was scratching away at you. And that's really what The Burning Chambers has been for me. And of course, what I do is I do, or like, I write untold women's stories that are us, they're the normal women. And what I mean by that is not the court, not the kings and queens and the generals and the priests and the pope and all of this thing, but the stories of all of us who live with the consequences of what our rulers do. And whether it's today, um, I'm not a contemporary writer at all, um, but actually those things are the same. So a decision made in Paris influences the lives of millions of people. France essentially sets a civil war upon itself from which the country will not recover for hundreds of years. All of the rest of the countries where the Huguenots are expelled to are the beneficiaries because oddly with this story, with this refugee story, they are the doctors and the lawyers and the business people and the tradesmen and women and the readers and the booksellers. And so it is an extraordinary moment of history. But what I was trying to do with the burning chambers is say, so you live in Carcassonne, you're Catholic, you don't really think about it, you just are. Some people are Protestant, they just are. And then suddenly you discover that you're not allowed to be friends with them anymore. And so that everything that you do is a choice that potentially has fatal consequences and often horrifying consequences before the fatal consequences Mm. in terms of torture and all of these sorts of things. And so always at the heart of my historical fiction is writing stories of us, the normal people, writing, asking myself the question, what would you do, Kate, if somebody that has always been your friend is suddenly revealed to be on quote the wrong side do you hide them in your attic or do you fear for your mother or your grandchild and, and think you can't put them at risk where you know mm-hmm. so I write about war and the consequences of war and faith and the consequences of faith and in truth any war of religion is mostly not about religion it's about power mm. it's about influence it's about whipping up fear of the other in order to shore up your strength. So the the novel starts with Minou, who is in Carcassonne, Pete, who is a Huguenot, who has come to Carcassonne for various reasons. Um, And immediately we know that there are stories going on behind the scenes and will they meet, if they do meet, what's going to happen. And the inspiration for the book came from... For me, it always comes out of research. I do all my own research and I knew I wanted to write about the wars of religion. I knew I wanted to write a huge European diaspora novel, but I didn't really know the characters or the story. I just knew that I had that ambition. And the novel came to life when I was researching and I discovered that a few weeks after the first engagement of the wars of religion in March 1562, in Toulouse there had been something which sums up everything about the wars of Religion, which is a Huguenot woman has died. Her Huguenot husband is taking the funeral procession, the coffin, to the new temple that's been built outside the walls in Toulouse. Her Catholic family want to get the body and they attack the funeral party and they grab the coffin and the coffin falls to the ground and the woman's body falls out on the street. And at that moment, that tiny moment... Suddenly, I can see Minu. I can see Pete. I can see everything because, in in a way, that awful moment—that's it. That's all you need to know about the walls of religion. That's that's it, and it's always about the domestic in the epic setting for me. So, you know, it's a lot of years to get through. Obviously, three hundred years. Three hundred years, yeah. years, and you know all of that. Um, but I'm—it's lovely. I've never planned and written a series before, like Steph does with Bruno. Mm. And so it was amazing finishing The Burning Chambers and immediately being able to start number two, which is called The City of Tears, um, which starts in Paris, you'll not be surprised to know, in August 1572. Oh, no. um, and of course all the characters <laughs> that you ho- I hope everybody loves and they're trying to decide whether to go to the wedding. Mm. And of course the one thing people know about the Wars of Don't Religion is the, the St. Bartholomew's Day <laughs> Massacre. And yeah. so I'm already getting people going, You're not going to kill her, though, are you? And I've never had that of characters going on. And it's like, it's so, so exciting.
1: Oh, it must be, yeah. (laughs) And so do you know now how many books it's going to be? Or is there um, just a rough estimate? Well, no,
2: there (laughs) was supposed (laughs) to be three. Mm -hmm. Um, And we, you know, and then after a a little bit, um, I said to my wonderful publisher's mantle, Maria Raich, you know, wonderful, wonderful editor and publisher, I said, We might have a problem, Houston. (laughs) (laughs) And she said, oh, yes. Uh, And I said, well, because the first book was originally supposed to be 1562 to 1590, which is the point where in Carcassonne, the Bastide, the modern town, is Huguenot. La Cité is still Catholic and they have been at civil war with each other for all of these years on and off through the various wars that, you know, happen and then it go away and then you start again. There's eight um, Engagements in all in the wars of religion, and I, you know, had all of that planned, and it was the parley on the bridge, and finally everybody's worn out. They they haven't really come to an agreement. They're worn out with fighting and death. But unfortunately, <laughs> in the burning chambers, I managed to get from March to May, fifteen sixty two. So I said to my editor, you know, the, uh, uh, it's going to be quite difficult <laughs> to, you know, I know where the book finishes, and at the front of each book is the prologue, and at the back of the, each book is the prologue to the next book. So we know, we already know the 1862 characters in, in South Africa. Um, and, of course, I'm building up to that. So I thought, well, we're going to have to live as long as Methuselah <laughs> to get them there at this rate. So um, I think there'll probably be four. <laughs> right.
1: <clears throat> OK, fair. I'm sure... Possibly if any- five. No, no, <laughs> <goes>. <laughs> If anyone can sign off on it, Maria can yes, sign exactly. off Yes, she, exactly. She has all the power. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, speaking of war... Uh, it's time for the book off, and really? this is where you go head to head. And as friends, uh, as I've found in the past, they're often the more competitive ones than two strangers you meet. So, are, are you? Um, do you have a bit of a competitive streak in you, Kate? Do you think?
2: Uh, no, no, actually. Okay. funny well, enough, no, okay. not really. I, I think this comes from being just so incredibly rubbish at games, and so you have to make a decision when you're really young. You either care about those things or you don't. Don't was my advice to myself, and so therefore I don't really have that. I like to do things well and feel I've done my best, but I'm not really like I must win. I'm not really
1: like that. Mm. What about you,
3: Stephanie? Oh, no, I am. I'm quite pleased that, <laughs> I'm quite pleased that she's really jet-lagged because, uh, yeah, I'm hoping for... that'll be like a handicap, you know. Can you um... see from
1: her posture there, Kate? That Stephanie's sat <laughs> up
3: yeah, well, now yeah, she's exactly. sat I'm and the shoulders lying are back. lying on the sofa, like, barely, yeah, <laughs> slouching. Ready to go. You <laughs> haven't even brought your book, but that's probably because you've got it all in your head. Oh, yes. Uh, off yeah. my heart. <laughs> off, yes.
1: Or maybe <laughs> which... that's tactics on your part oh, yeah, to bring the book. Yeah, and you're trying to intimidate me with your book, which
2: is creeping over to my side of the
1: sofa. For anyone who hasn't listened before what we do here is our two guests have brought with them a book that they love a book that they think that we should all read and uh, they're about to get three minutes each to pitch that to us and i have to make the decision on everyone's behalf of uh, which one i'm going to take home so to decide who'd like to go first i've got a little coin here so um stephanie you can call it heads or tails oh, heads heads ears, right. oh it's heads oh first or second
3: Oh, I'll go second,
2: <laughs> Oh, You okay. oh, see what us. I'm up against. And, yeah, uh, yeah oh, very good, right.
1: And um, would you like a, uh, a bell or a, a honk? <laughs>
3: oh, a honk, I think.
2: You
1: can have a honk, which means that you get the bell, if that's all right. I think
3: the bell
2: is very appropriate for, you know, someone who writes about religion and yeah. the tolling of the <laughs> yes, bell. Yes, <laughs> With exactly. the Duchess of Malfi level of body counts in, in her book.
1: So. so I'll just get the timer up. Tell us, Kate, uh, before we start, just tell us what book you're putting forward.
2: I am putting forward Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. And it is the 200th um, anniversary of the publication of Frankenstein yes, this of year. Course. It was published in 1818. And the great, late Brian Aldiss, you know, said that this probably was the first ever science fiction novel. But it was also one of the great Gothic novels. Um, and I think that it's everybody who comes after Frankenstein, that novel, we all walk in her footsteps.
1: It was published on the 1st of January as well, wasn't it? So it's yeah. very, you know, it's it literally just t- anonymously. Anonymously.
2: Her name did not appear.
1: Well, it, you've got three minutes then. Kate Moss on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Over to you.
2: Right. Frankenstein is often presented as a novel about man, very deliberately, man playing God. But actually, that's not what the novel's about at all. I think the novel is about ambition and The Consequences of Ambition, and I think it is about love and what happens to somebody if their love is withheld from them. So the story that we know, many people don't know it from films, but the book itself is framed by the captain of a ship going to the uh, Arctic and he sees a head on the ice floe, a creature and a man. And he rescues the man and the man, Dr Frankenstein, tells him his story and the story is very straightforward he wants to see if he can bring life to you know create life and he's not in a laboratory he's in a workshop and he's doing this and it's gothic fiction so gothic fiction is all about light and shade it's about the shadow and the dark it's about the extremes of nature always fighting back and he does create the creature and he's so horrified about what he's done he runs away Um, and when he comes back the creature is gone and all the way through the novel, it is the sense of what does it mean to be a parent? If you create something, it is your responsibility to love it and to care for it and teach for it. But creature who never has a name and at one moment he calls that great thing from Paradise Lost, you know, the call of Adam to God, you know, why did you create me? And the creature, and he's called Fiend, he's called Demon, he's called, you know, Abortion, it's, you know, he, he never has a name. He learns to speak because he hears people in the wood. He doesn't know that he is repellent and awful. He's eight foot tall, but he doesn't know what he looks like. Um, and he learns to speak and he sees love. And then people start to look at him and they scream and they run away and he understands that he's repellent. And he asks Frankenstein to make him somebody who can be like him. And Frankenstein starts... And then he can't do it because the fear of creating another creature that could take over, eight-foot giants taking over the world. So he destroys the female creature. And at that moment, Monster says, if you will not love me and I'm to live without love, I will destroy everything. And from that moment onwards, that is what he does. And he gets no peace because in the end, when he gets to Frankenstein and is going to destroy Dr. Frankenstein and he does die... Creature still has no peace. So I love the novel because Mary Shelley um, had... She was a teenager, is very famous. The story is sitting round um, in the year of no summer um, in 1816 with Byron and Polidori and Shelley um, by the lake telling each other ghost stories. There, There had been a massive eruption. The sky was black all of the summer and there was no sun. They told the stories and she finally got round to writing it. Within her life, she was pregnant at 16, she lost her first child, her two next children died, her brother-in-law died, her sister died, everybody died, but yet she created the best book and it has never been out of print since and it shows us that you can create anything just from your imagination.
1: Very good. Just got in there under the wire there. Wow. Do you think that that book is responsible for you writing the books that you write? No.
2: I, thi- <laughs> I think I oh. think no 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 um I came to it later than that mm. like many people I came to it through films and and didn't really understand it and it was only when I went back to the book and I thought it says everything about what it means to be a woman writing from imagination not about domesticity. It's everything about a woman being ambitious. But as I've read it, as an older writer, it certainly has influenced me. The book that made me become a writer is probably Wuthering Heights and of course we are celebrating Mm. the 200th anniversary of Emily Bronte's uh, birth this year. So you know, 2018 is a big old year for the women in whose uh, footsteps we walk.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Stephanie, what have you chosen?
3: I have brought The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco.
1: And this is from the 1980, 1980.
3: This 1980. This was first published in Italy, and then uh, about three years later in America. And four, I think in 80, yeah, I think 83, it came out in in English translation.
1: Right. So I I must admit I don't know it. So I'm well. I'm looking forward to uh, hearing all about it in your three minutes. Uh, mm. So here we go, Stephanie. The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco. Over to you.
3: Well, this is uh, indisputably the book that made me want to become a writer, or certainly that made me want to write historical fiction. Um, it is a literary historical detective story. It's uh, If I was to sum it up succ- succinctly, it is Sherlock Holmes set in a, 14th century monastery. Um, we know it's Sherlock Holmes set in a monastery because the the main detective character is called Brother William of Baskerville. That's just one of many, many little literary jokes um, that Echo has in this book. And it's a proper whodunit. It's a proper classic locked room mystery. Um, it's being narrated by uh, a monk who is... A very old man when he tells the story, but it's the story of when he was a a young novice. He's in his teens um, and he goes on a journey with this character, Brother William of Baskerville, to a monastery which is not named because he doesn't want people to identify it because of the terrible things that went on there. And when they arrive, they find that there has been a mysterious death. Uh, They think it's a suicide, but as Brother William begins to look into it, clearly it isn't. And it's just one in a series of murders that start to happen while they are um, inside the monastery and and um so there they are in this classic who done it and it 's so wonderfully set up because uh it's seeded with clues all the way through, so you are as the reader trying to guess as you go along who the murderer might be, and there's a whole wonderful carnivalesque cast of characters um what i one of the many things that I love about this book is that it is so unapologetically for book lovers. It's a literary game through and through. It begins... uh, So there is a prologue, which is uh, Echo himself, who was a respected professor of semiotics uh, and linguistics at the time. This was his debut novel. He'd written a number of non-fiction books. And he presents this as a book he found in manuscript and then had begun to translate but lost the manuscript again. So he presents it, and it's so wonderful. I've got my... um, Original copy, which I first read when I was 16. So uh, that was 10 years after it was published in 1990. And um, it begins on the on the preface to the prologue. It just says, naturally, a manuscript. So we know that there's a little bit of a twinkle in his eye here. And so he claims to have found this manuscript, but then can't find any other source reference to it. And half of the prologue is is in Latin all the way through. Uh, there are whole chunks of untranslated French, Latin, kind of old German Um there are all kinds of literary references in it. There's a great influence from um, Borges. So there is the, the abbey's library where lots of these deaths and the, the kind of secret missing book that seems to be behind them. Um, so a lot of it's concentrated on the library and it's designed in the form of a labyrinth. And uh, there's an old librarian called Blind Jorge of Burgos. It's a, a really gripping erudite uh, scholarly and, and absolutely just wonderful um, murder mystery.
1: Wow. You did not crash the time. You did not crash the fifth. Oh, you and your radio terms there. Oh, yes,
3: they can be hurling them about. Goodness
1: me, it's so wonderful that you've brought that that copy in. This
3: is my original copy and you can see all the pages are falling out. It's yeah, it's, it's lovely the, yellow it's pages. The book I have reread more than any other mm. in my life. How interesting. So, yeah. I reread it every couple of years because I think it's such a masterpiece. Yeah. Wow. And nothing none of his fiction ever kind of quite touched this again. It was all sort of quite Respectably reviewed, but this um, I think has sold somewhere in the region of fifty million copies. My goodness, I mean, it was a huge bestseller. I'm I'm not going to you know trade numbers, but
2: I I think Frankenstein sold more.
3: <laughs> oh, I know, mean, but she's had, <laughs> yeah, had longer. I have no
2: idea. She's, she's had, had, a bit longer. had longer.
1: <laughs> yeah, just a few, yeah. Um, seeing that book though uh, has made me think. Do you do you keep when you, when you've read a book that you absolutely love? Do you keep it and that copy? Will it will yeah, it always yeah, be
2: absolutely? I mean, house, I've yeah. got a very old copy of Frankenstein that my ma gave me. She instituted um, uh, a sort of a, a thing that we would have, as per Alice in Wonderland... An unbirthday present. So the day after your birthday, when you're a child, you know, and you know you have to wait almost a whole year for your next birthday. I still love birthdays, um, <laughs> and so my ma gave me one year copy of Frankenstein, and it is in that period of time utter schlock. So utterly not how I think about the novel. It's one of those covers you know, ah, some yes, yeah. you know in the background, <laughs> not at all the novel, um, but like Steph's copy of The Name of the Rose, which has got this wonderful gold and red and yellowy pages. Mine's exactly like that. And every now and again, you open a book like that up, the glue is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see the pa- one page is upside down. And there's always something for, I suspect for you as well, Steph, you know, it's exciting when you're a writer that writes about books a lot, which I do. Um, it's that thing of, oh, why is that page upside down? Mm. And you kind yes, of later, yes ah, And then you start to think of a detective story about someone who finds a copy of Frankenstein and, <laughs> you know, and it's all of that. But I think it's also always, I always feel a co- not, not a communion. That sounds, you know, too daft. But a, a sense of uh, the relationship between me and the author through the physicality of that book and the wonderful Neil McGregor once described this as the charisma of things, and there are just certain books mm. that are part of, you know, they are they're an object in their own right. They're mm. not just the text.
1: Yeah. And isn't it wonderful to, to look at that front cover and just know that that must have been published in the 80s? Oh, yeah. Because oh, that, absolutely. Font, yeah,
2: yeah. Cause that that could be a James Herbert. <laughs> it, could, it could be the fog or, it Absolutely. Or really that font
1: is uh, is just so yeah. mid-80s, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Mm. Yeah. It's wonderful.
2: And embossed red. Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> both fantastic pictures, and I do this every week. It's just getting ridiculous. Oh, this must be the worst job. Well, it's, it's also just so, the so repetitive in that I go, oh, I'd love to take them both home, and everyone listening is going, yeah, all right, mate, right, time to choose. <laughs> um, I mean, goodness, I uh, having never... Never heard of Umberto Eco. I just, I feel like that's, you know, and you saying you reread it all the time, you know, it's, oh, it's throwing so many things at me and all the literary references. And and Kate, you've just picked a, a true classic. And, you know, uh, the fact that it's it's 200 years old and still relevant in so many ways and it even, you know, more so in reading so well. What to go for? Um, I have to base them on on the pitch, on the three minutes. I have to base on, on what I got from them so... Today I'm going to choose Frankenstein for the 200 years <laughs> and for just the passion that exude there. Well, Kate. I
2: am so glad, and I'll tell you why, because actually most people, when you go back to the book, you'll be so thrilled. Mm. It is so brilliant and beautiful, and all of us have in our mind, you know, Boris Karloff, that's not the novel. no. no. It's not the novel.
1: It's a girl's novel. And many will go back to it now, hopefully. And perhaps people are listening who've never read it and they think... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's about, and we'll, it's about time. they astonished yeah. when they do, I think. Um, but... Umberto Eco is someone that we're going to look out for as well, I think. And thank you very Dude, much, Steph, no, for bringing I mean, I him to our attention.
3: Because I think Kate does speak brilliantly <laughs> about, about Mary Shelley. Um,
1: Indeed. Yeah. I mean, you've brought him to our attention, but he sold 50 million copies. So, I mean, he really doesn't need me, does he? He, to he did up. all right over this one, yeah. <laughs> um, thank you both so much for, for joining us, for being here, for getting over jet lag, for coming up to London. Um, the Burning Chambers is out, Kate, in May. The May 3rd. And while you sleep, Steph is out now. It's out now. It's out yeah, now. Last um, week. Both brilliant. Um, so thank you both. And I'm, I'm going to go for a little sleep now. I don't know about you,
2: <laughs> Kate. I'm, <I>, I'm barely <laughs> awake.
1: <laughs> and thank you, of course, for listening to this episode of Book Off. If you're a fan and you'd like to spread the word, then, of course, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at odobookoff. And until next time, goodbye for now.